Uh, good morning. Glad to have you worshiping with us today. We are going to be looking at Psalms 10 and 13. We're going to look first at Psalm 13. Uh, both, though, are examples of Psalms of lament. So we've, we've seen some Psalms already so far in our study of the book of Psalms in which David is feeling low, where he's feeling under stress and challenged by persecution. But these are specifically categorized as songs of lament. We'll see why. Let's stand as we read God's word today. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I've trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, as we read these two psalms and are reminded of other parts of your holy and inspired word, I pray that you would help us to listen, learn, and apply these things today. Bless us, Lord, by the reading, by the learning, and by all that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, the philosopher Voltaire on his deathbed said, I am abandoned by God and by man. And we might expect that from a godless atheist like Voltaire, but do we really expect that from King David? And yet in verse 1 of Psalm 13, he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? In Psalm 10, verse 1, he writes, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And perhaps as you read those statements and those questions by David, you may remember times where you felt that way, where you felt that God had abandoned you. And you might be wondering, should Christians even feel that way? And in order to answer that question, I want to examine first David's circumstances here in these two Psalms. Psalm 13 doesn't provide a lot of detail, but verses 2 and 4 give us a hint. They say, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then in verse 4 it says, consider and answer me, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. And so it seems that David's enemies have had the upper hand for a long time. We can hear the frustration in that phrase, how long? Because it's repeated four times in the first two verses. As one commentator writes, we can put up with something if we know how long it will last. But trouble can become unbearable when there's no end in sight. Your endurance wears thin like old brake pads. We can usually stand under short, sharp trials. But long-term trials grind us down over time. He writes, ever feel that way? Weary from 
enduring a difficulty that just doesn't seem like it will go away? And were you tempted to think that God doesn't care, that he has hidden his face and he's looked the other way? Well, in Psalm 10, David's circumstances are a little clearer than in Psalm 13, but they are very similar. We read, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there's no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue or mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and in hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket and he lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And this is such a a great psychological profile of a man who stands against God. And David describes him as being arrogant in verses 2 and 3, as greedy and self-centered in verse 3, as thinking that God will do nothing about his wickedness in verses 5 and 6, as being so pridefully confident in verse 6 also that he may get away with anything, verses 7 through 10, as being filled with lies and curses and violence. And interestingly, in verse 11, this person says the thing. Did you notice that? It says the same thing that David does in Psalm 3. He says, God has forgotten and hidden his face. And of course, the wicked man says that because, well, he thinks that God is not looking. He thinks he can get away with something. But David says that because it's a plea for God to stop hiding his face, to stop looking the other way. Imagine as if David is saying, God, look at what's happening Aren't you going to do something? Don't you see this? And the wicked man says, he's not going to answer you. God doesn't care what I do. I can do whatever I want. So that's what we have as this contrast in in both of these psalms. And in Psalm 10, 12 through 13, the following verses, David adds to his plea these words. He says, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? And you can see how David is boiling down this issue to a question. Why do you let the wicked get away with saying that he is accountable to nobody, especially to you? Do something. And David's not just concerned about his own situation. He's not, it's not just about get me out of this pit, it's also about God's reputation because he's saying, look at what the wicked man is saying. It seems like your lack 
of action is only confirming what he's saying in his heart. He's saying, through generations, I'm not going to face any adversity. I'm not going to face any consequences. And the longer that God waits, the more the wicked convince themselves that he is impotent, that he's unaware, or simply doesn't care. Maybe that's a part of what you've experienced as well. Maybe you've been angry over the seeming triumph over over you or your family or just even our society and culture in these past few years, do you ask God, why are you waiting? Why aren't you frustrating the plans of these men and women? You see their pictures all over Google and all of the headlines all the time. Men and women who hate you and your church. Why have you turned your face away from your people? Well, the 13th century, I'm sorry, the 18th century philosopher David Hume, he wrote these words, were a stranger to drop suddenly into this world, I would show him, he says, as a specimen of its ills, a hospital full of disease, a prison crowded with malefactors and debtors, a field strewn with carcasses, a fleet floundering in the ocean, a nation languishing under tyranny, famine, or pestilence. Honestly, I don't see how you can possibly square with an ultimate purpose of love. It's not science that has led me to doubt the purpose of God. It is the state of the world, the pitiful, unending struggle for existence among the nations. It is the collapse of our idealisms before the brute facts of force and chaos. It is the feeling that there is something demonic in the heart of things which is working against us, that there is a radical twist in the very constitution of the universe that will always defeat man's hopes, make havoc of his dreams, and bring his pathetic optimism crashing in disaster. Purpose? Look at the world. That settles it. End quote. Uh, He was not an optimist, by the way. Hume summarizes well, though, the major reason why people say that they doubt the existence of God. It's the existence of evil. It's suffering, together with the seeming delay or lack of care of God. And so David in Scripture is not the only person who ever asked how long. David Hume is not the only atheist who ever said how long. Look at these words of Habakkuk. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Do you hear Hume there? It's, a, it's the same kind of question asked by Christian, non-Christian, believer, unbeliever alike. Habakkuk raises this issue again, just like David God's delay in the face of evil, and they are, in fact, in Habakkuk, a good summary of David's points in Psalms 10 and 13. Another prophet, Jeremiah, writes in Jeremiah 12, 1, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the treacherous thrive? These are great questions, and they've been asked by so many, so many believers. David, 
Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Job, Elijah, many others, including Moses. And I, I mention Moses because he's a good example of someone who faced difficult circumstances with not just evil unbelievers, but actually also with believers. Both sides of the fence, Moses faced difficulty and disgruntlement. And he too asked God, how long? And a good example is found in Exodus 5 here, which takes place right after Moses met with Pharaoh for the first time, and Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. No surprise. He refused to let them go, but he also increased the burden upon the Israelite slaves. And so it says, the Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, you may remember from reading the book of Exodus that God actually told Moses exactly what the Pharaoh was going to do, right? He told them that. Do you remember? He said this in a later, you know, an earlier chapter, in chapter 3, he says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, and so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. I mean, Moses hasn't done any wonders yet. And so God had said what was going to happen, and there shouldn't have been any surprises, but Moses forgot, and that's the way it is with us, friends. We forget. We forget that God has told us, he's warned us about the difficulty that we will face as we serve Christ in a fallen world. In John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Did you forget that? Or what about this from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And yet when we face that, right, we forget that he says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. We forget that God said we're going to face difficulty. We forget why we're going to face difficulty. Moses was told, I am going to do these wonders. Why? I am going to show my mighty power, my sovereignty, not just to the Pharaoh, but to all the land of Egypt. Paul said, Jesus is going to show through us, through our commitment to him, through carrying in our own bodies, his afflictions, he's going to show not just your family, not just your neighbor, but the entire world, the glory of Christ. When we live godly lives, we must expect to be hard-pressed and persecuted and perplexed. And yet we often react like Moses and Job and David and others, forgetting God's reminders, and we ask him, 
Why have you troubled us this way? Why have you brought evil to me, to my family, to your people? Ever since I started on your behalf, things keep going poorly. Did you just set me up to fail? We must remember, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and authorities in these uh, cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Moses and Job, Elijah and David, they weren't simply opposed by man, but ultimately the real power behind a pharaoh or behind David's enemies or Ahab and Jezebel or even the random events that Job faced, seemingly random events, there was none other than Satan. And Paul's advice to Christians is found in those later verses of Ephesians 6 where it says, stand. And you can see there the, the weapons and the armor of the Christian. The righteousness and peace and faith. The word of God. And Paul says, stand. And sometimes that's all that you can do when the real battle is not just between flesh and blood. We can fashion all the earthly tools we want to to desire and accomplish the task. We can keep working harder. We can think that if we get smarter or better at something, perform better, meet the right people, have the right influence, it'll get better. But sometimes it's simply, in fact, many times, it is just not between you and flesh and blood but it is you against spiritual forces of evil in high places and your right tools are righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, God's word, prayer, and more. In Psalm 13, David asks that the Lord would do three things. He says, consider my plea. Answer my prayer. Light up, encourage my eyes. And I mentioned Habakkuk already. Interestingly, he had himself a request. In fact, he had several complaints. But in chapter 2, he has the boldness, perhaps foolishness, to say, I'm going to take my stand at my watch post. And I'm going to station myself on the tower. And I'm going to look out to see what he will say to me and I will, what I will answer Concerning my complaint, you know, as, as you look at that, you know, you envision him standing up there and the winds blowing, right? I, I think of this long-haired prophet and the, the long beard and the winds blowing and his robes blowing behind him. Sometimes I even think of Moses' staff in his hand uh, there as he stands on the tower and, you know, Lord, are you going to answer me? And he even has this rashness, right, to say, and I'm going to think while I'm waiting for him to answer, I'm going to think what my response is going to be to him. That is bold. Jeremiah is a bit more humble. He simply says, I want to complain to you, and I want to plead my case to you. Well, going back to the example of Moses in the Exodus we already saw Moses' complaint, and I'll share with you the answer. It's found in Exodus chapter 6. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. 
don't, don't go over that part quickly. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. You know, the powerful God, the warrior God, the Lord of hosts. The Lord is my banner. Remember all the names of God in those early times, early years? But by my name, the Lord, the I am, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people in Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And we need to read those words and apply them to ourselves. God rebukes Moses because Moses forgot. So what I talked about last week, this idea of the need to remind ourselves of the stories of the past so we don't forget how God works in the lives of believers, his sometimes paradoxical ways of using, for example, weakness in the face of worldly strength. And Moses had heard from his family and others about God's fulfilled promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob He must have heard about the blessing of a son to childless Abraham, the preservation of the Israelites through Joseph, and a host of other miracles performed by the God of Israel. And that very same God who could work miraculously in the lives of the patriarchs, was he not the same God of Moses? But God had done even something better to Moses. He had given him a new name that had a powerful aspect to it. I am. I am. And I think God was saying, Moses, you think that your obedience has backfired and resulted in greater oppression. Even your own nation is angry with you. But remember this, my faithfulness will outlast this terrible blow. When you encounter temporary setbacks, you must take time to look at what I've done in the past and then you have to remind yourself about my long-range plans. And I've already told you what will happen. What I plan to do, and you know that I have kept my promises in the past. Your friends... They might desert you, but I'll always be with you. Your friends and family, your circumstances may change, but I, the Lord, do not, because I am. I am. The self-existent one. The one who does not change. How did God respond to Habakkuk and Jeremiah? Well, mercifully, God did not strike Habakkuk down with a lightning bolt, right? He didn't strike down Habakkuk as he's angrily there standing at the watchtower waiting for God. He also patiently listened to Jeremiah. 
But I think the Lord's responses to both men are helpful. To Jeremiah, he said, and this is recorded in Jeremiah 12, verse 5, if you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? In other words, Jeremiah, you need to have a thicker skin because it can and it will get worse. That's what he's telling Jeremiah. It's sometimes a good reminder for us that we who grow weary and frustrated over small things, it, it can and it may get worse. I can get frustrated over last-minute obligations that throw me and my family into sudden chaos, right? Same with you. Jeremiah, by contrast, is rejected by his family. He's rejected by his neighbors. And he saw rank corruption at all levels, both in the government and in the church. And even that was minor compared to what was about to happen. God said that what was about to come was Babylon invading Israel. Conquer Israel, take the people into exile. And so he says to Jeremiah, so stop complaining. I will be with you even as it gets worse. Let me stop for a second. Can you give me back control on the keyboard? It's not there. Thank you. So Habakkuk 2 then records God's lengthy response to Habakkuk, but these words stand out to me in Habakkuk 2.2. The vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and will not delay. And then following that statement in Habakkuk 2 is a detailed list of all the things that God's going to do. But I want you to see what God says. The vision awaits its appointed time. Sometimes we need to remember God's in control. He's sovereign and he has a plan and a purpose. An appointed time. Does he see? Yes, he sees. Will he answer? Yes, he will answer. At the appointed time. And he says, if it seems slow, do all these men think it seems slow? Absolutely. He says, wait for it. Like that phrase, wait for it. <laughs> wait for it. But for God, he's saying that in the, the face of, some, you know, to someone who has been waiting a long time. Somebody who's seeing tragedy as they would define it just continue to unfold and by their definitions and standards there's no way that a good righteous holy God would wait so long and yet God gives this reminder and this rebuke to Habakkuk it will surely come it will not delay and God was good enough in that particular moment to go ahead and tell Habakkuk all of the things that he was going to do and they included a judgment on Babylon. Well, friends, sometimes things seem slow, but that's because we typically want everything resolved today. It's because that we, the way we evaluate things is particularly how they impact us, 
how they impact our families right now in the moment. We have to have a longer range understanding of life. God's purposes as they work themselves out amongst nations, amongst the world as a whole. We don't know the future. We don't know the past like God does. We don't operate the same way. We wouldn't choose to do the same things. So remember the past and remind yourself of God's plans for the future. I see both of those things being done, for example, by King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. You may remember this story. It's the story of him marching against a massive army. And we read that after this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men came and told Jehoshaphat, this great multitude's coming against you from Edom. That is, in Gedi. And, and so Jehoshaphat was afraid, understandably afraid. Massive army. And he sets his face to seek the Lord, proclaims a fast throughout all Judah, appropriate for the serious and sober prayer that he's about to give. It says Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the earth. And your hand or power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And have, and they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, famine... We will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold the men of Amnon and and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade. You see what Jehoshaphat is saying. He's saying, God, you, you told us not to invade these countries because of their relationship to Lot. You, you told us to leave them alone and look at how they're repaying that kindness. They have gathered together to wipe out your people. What, what, where's the fairness in that? Behold, they have gathered together. You would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. And behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And you can see the setting, you can see Jehoshaphat's sense of overwhelming fear, and in a sense, there are elements of hopelessness in his prayer that we find in in some of the other men like David and Habakkuk and Moses that we have looked at. Will you not, even questions, will you not execute judgment on them, he asked. An acknowledgement of we are powerless and don't know what to do, but there is something else that sets Jehoshaphat apart from some of the examples that we've seen. First, 
in verse 6, he says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Are you not? That was an acknowledgement that no matter how things seemed, yet Jehoshaphat knew the truth. God was not absent. He was not impatient. He says, you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations and in your hand are power and might so that none are able to withstand you. It's not, are you looking the other way and and the wicked are taking advantage of it? No, it's an acknowledgement by Jehoshaphat that God is in control. Are you not? And then in verse 7, Jehoshaphat says, Did you not, past tense, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? Did you not? Jehoshaphat remembers the past. And he remembers what God had promised, that he gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And then in verse 9, Jehoshaphat quotes Moses and the Israelites who came out of Exodus, and he says, that they had said, if disaster comes, the sword, judgment, pestilence, famine, we will stand before you, for your name is in this house, and we will cry out to you, and you will hear and say, you will, future, God's promise. And so all of this leads to Jehoshaphat's declaration of verse 12, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's what separates Jehoshaphat from the others. Are you not acknowledging God in the present, in control? Did you not, remembering the stories of the past, God's history with his people, the works that he had done, and the the consistent covenantal faithfulness of a God who always was with his people, even though sometimes it seemed that things delayed? Will you, remembering God's promises for the future, and what he has said that he had done, and that leads them to say, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, and we trust you. That's the difference in Jehoshaphat than what we've seen so far. And sometimes that's what you have to do. In the difficult trial, you have to say, he is good, he is holy, he is just. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And we see Habakkuk's response to God's rebuke in in Habakkuk 3. I hear and my body trembles. He didn't have that statement of a Jehoshaphat. God had to rebuke him. And his right response then was to respond in fearful reverence. My body, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. I am reminded, you know, of my pride as I came up to say, I'm going to stand and I'm going to consider my answer before the holy creator, God of the universe, who stands in control of all the nations. Come on, Habakkuk. That's what he's now saying to himself. Rottenness enters my bones because I remember who I am. Right? And then, but but it doesn't leave it there. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no Lord or herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. That's what he says. For he is my strength. He should have said that at the beginning, but it's okay. Sometimes we have to be reminded. Sometimes we have to go back to the word and, and go, what have I been complaining about? 
For days, for weeks, for months, for years, I'm reminded that my joy is the Lord and he makes my feet like the deer's. Do you think that you can be like Habakkuk? In Psalm 13, we don't hear God's response to David. David had pled out to the Lord, consider my prayer. Answer me. Not with the, the words of Habakkuk, but answer me. Lighten up my eyes, encourage me. But a little bit more like Jehoshaphat, David says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So what we see in this is that each of these men that we've looked at had to learn, as must we all, that the trials of life drive us back to God's heart, back to his steadfast love, to remember his promises and remember what he has intended to do. He's already told us far more. He's told us far more than he ever told any of those men. And maybe you're still struggling. And if so, can I tell you one more thing? As troubling as some of the trials that I face, likely that you face, may seem at the time, even as I alluded to Jeremiah, when we compare them to what some of these men faced, I can't imagine what it was like for David to constantly have people try to kill him or Moses or Job and what he went through. And maybe what you're struggling with is this all sounds good for maybe 80% of things. But what about that 20% when going back to the very beginning? What about the thing that just never seems to end? What about the most tragic news of all? What about the loss of family members? Well, I think of some of these men. I think, I think of Isaiah, for example, and what he went through. And you all may forget my sermon three hours from now, but at least you agree with a lot of what I say. But Isaiah, he was told from the beginning that he would face opposition and disagreement from everyone, rejection from everyone for the rest of his life. And Isaiah even asked the Lord, like David, how long? To which God responded in Isaiah 6, how long? Well, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are in many in the midst of the land. The answer to how long was until there's no one left to listen. How discouraging is that? Isaiah, go out and speak these words that no one will listen to, that no one's going to repent over, and it's going to result in this land being laid desolate. And he's going to end up being martyred. But you know what? Success for Isaiah was not about having at least one person listen to him. Success for Isaiah was about being obedient and sharing the message that God had given him. And whenever he felt discouraged and began to waver, he could go back to his vision 
of God upon his throne, which we read about in the first part of chapter 6, just like when Moses began to lose faith, he could remember the meeting at the burning bush and God telling him, I am has sent you. Just as David, when he got discouraged, could remember his anointing by God by the hand of Samuel. And when you get discouraged, remember the time in which God called you. Remember, as David says at the end of chapter 13, Psalm 13, for God has dealt bountifully with me. Remember those bountiful blessings. Go back to that time. I think of Paul languishing in a cold, lonely prison cell. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, you, you, knowing his story, you, you feel with him these words, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed Why does he say I'm not ashamed? Because most people would be in that situation. Because maybe there's even the temptation to be ashamed. Maybe there's the temptation to be asking how long and why. But he says, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. He goes back in his mind to the point when when Christ struck him down from the horse. Blinded him. And said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, O Lord? I am Christ, the one that you are persecuting. He remembered that time. He remembered the blessing of of people like Timothy, of of the gospel going out amongst the Gentile nations. And he says, God appointed me for this very purpose. And now I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. A man at the end of his life, looking out, seeing the church under persecution, you remember times when he's writing to the Galatians, for example, why are you being bewitched by these people that have come in after you and, and given you a false gospel? There had to be times that were frustrating for Paul. There had to have been moments where he's there in this prison cell under false accusations on his way to Rome, in Rome, and, and more. Soon to face execution when he had to say, is this it? Is this it? But he says, I am convinced that he is able to guard, God is able to guard what he has entrusted to me, success was in obedience. God was able to ensure the result. And sometimes you have, to, you have to be like Paul in a prison cell and you have to borrow God's telescope to see the future and what God plans for both you and for this world. David had that long view. Which is why he ends Psalm 10 with these words that sound reminiscent a little bit also of, of Jehoshaphat's prayer. He says, but you do see. He had asked the questions, do you not see? But then he reminds himself at the end of Psalm 10, but you do see. For you know mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. 
He says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. And I like even how that's happening. You'll remember from the beginning of Psalm 10, he's, he's saying how the, the wicked says, no one's going to hold me to account. And that's, that's what's happening in the present. But David says, you do see it. You're not doing anything right now. Break his arm. <laughs> hold him to account until there's none left to be shouting this against you. I have done what I should, and my hope is in the Lord. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land, from his, from his hand. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. I don't know when. God says, wait. Sometimes it comes slow. But it will happen. God does not hide his face. God has a purpose. He does see. He does note mischief and vexation, as David says. And he is the Lord, the king, forever. And the nations will perish. There will be a day when man who is of the earth will strike terror no more. Part of our confidence that God will answer in the future is because not only has he blessed us in the past, but he's still blessing us in the present. And sometimes in the midst of trial, we're so blinded by our hurt, we're so blinded by our expectations that we're slow to note what he's still doing in the present. Friends, when you're tempted that way, everything that I've said so far Remembering the past, remembering his promises for the future, remembering who he is in the present, remembering how he's blessed you in the past. Stop and think for a moment, what is he doing right now? He's given me a godly spouse, maybe. He's given me a loving family. He's blessed me with air to breathe, food on my table. He's blessed me with salvation. He's given me a future inheritance and a hope in heaven. Return to what God has told you and remember success is in being obedient. Continue to share and proclaim the gospel. Continue to trust in God even when you feel hopeless. Because when the king comes, nothing else will matter. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your good word. And I thank you for these psalms from David that help remind us not only that you are the king who reigns in the heavens, but Lord, you are a good God who loves us, who has a plan for us. Your plans will come to fruition. They will unfailingly come to pass. Sometimes they seem slow in our timetable. Sometimes we can't understand why things are the way they are, but help us to remember what you've done in the past, not only to those who came before us, but even in our own lives. Help us to 
Reflect upon how you bless us in the present and what you promise to do in the future. For you are God. You are I am. And Lord, we have an eternal inheritance in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.